Good evening and welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray. With me by Squadcast is Dr. Robert Spies and our special guest tonight. We have a great show lined up. Uh, going to talk about something that I think almost everyone has an opinion about, and that is spiders. Bob, do you want to introduce tonight's guest? Yeah, we're very fortunate to have an expert in uh, California spiders, Dr. Marshall Hedin. He's at Cal State University, San Diego. He's a professor there and associate chair of the department. And uh, so welcome, uh, Dr. Hedin. Glad to have you on our show. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for having me. Exciting. Yeah. yeah we usually start out by asking our guests, uh, you know, how they got into doing what they do and maybe some stories from their early life and as kids and chasing around spiders in your backyard or whatever, anyhow, give, give us an idea how you got interested in spiders and, and, uh, and then how that led up to uh, uh, going to graduate school and all that sort of thing. Okay. You guys are from uh, Northern California, yeah? yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I was born actually in Wairika in Siskiyou County. Oh, and, no uh, kidding. That's where yeah. my family's from. Oh, nice. I mean, yeah, I grew up in Siskiyou County uh, on the flanks of Mount Shasta outside of Wairika. Actually, my so my father was a timber faller and we we actually moved around the country a little bit. So and in SoCal and then over in uh, Colorado and Wyoming. But we ended up back in Siskiyou County. And uh, so I spent a lot of time uh, outside when I was a youngster, for sure. I guess I would say that I was always interested in wildlife, uh, lots of hunting and fishing and, and such. And then uh, I actually went over to Humboldt State University for my undergrad. So that was a beautiful thing. I was a zoology major and I took all of the ology classes. So, you know, that was spectacular. Yeah. Mammology and ornithology and herpetology. And I actually took an entomology class, but I wasn't I wasn't interested in uh, insects or spiders at all then uh, that stage of my life. I was interested in uh, animal diversity. I worked in the mammal lab there, so that's what I kind of paid most attention to the to the big animals. And then uh, I went to Texas to do my uh, master's degree, and I worked on mammals there. When I was transitioning in my career and kind of exploring. I guess my true interest is when I went to do my PhD in uh, St. Louis, Missouri at Washington University. And I, I, I found myself in a lab where different students were working on different, different things, different taxa. I somehow became interested in arachnids. I read a, like a popular magazine article. And uh, I think that the little magazine called Natural History and that was oh, yeah. about the, the scorpions of uh, Baja, California. And I read that, you know, that on that peninsula, there were more scorpion species than any place else on Earth. And I just kind of got fascinated by that idea of all of that biodiversity. So I actually reached out to the author of that article, uh, Dr. Gary Polis uh, from Vanderbilt University, ultimately from UC Davis. And... Uh, Gary invited me on some trips. I went down to Baja a few times and became interested in, in arachnids and started learning more about them. And ultimately, I worked on cave spiders for my PhD, but uh, that's how I got interested uh, in arachnids. 
it, it's kind of funny. So when I was a PhD student at WashU, to help myself learn spiders, I did my PhD on spiders, ultimately on Appalachian cave spiders. But to help myself learn spiders, I would uh, I wrote a small grant to do a survey of the spider diversity of uh, a natural area down in the Ozarks. So I would go down to this this place in the Ozarks, and there was a cabin uh, multiple miles away from the main road, just this old uh, cobweb-ridden cabin in the trees. And I would go to that cabin, and I, I did that like four times a year for a few years as a PhD student. And I would go there, and I would just collect all the spiders I could find and, and uh, then ultimately try to figure out what they were. And But I remember just kind of laying in the bed of that cabin at night by my lonesome reading uh, how to know the spiders. So that's kind of interesting, <laughs> odd, but, but fun. You find a lot of this, a lot of the spiders uh, in the cabin. That, that cabin was choked full of spiders. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> but I spent a lot of time. Well, you know, like I say, there was no one around me that worked on spiders. So I was pretty much self-taught, a self-taught spider biologist. Well, that's a kind of a daunting task, isn't it? You you mentioned biodiversity, and my understanding is spider <laughs> the spider taxonomy is incredibly diverse. Yeah, there's 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 a good number of spiders, and and we continue to to learn more about them, of course. But uh, yeah, that's how I got started in in the spider world and arachnology. All right. So, how, how many species are there? Well, uh, how many actual species there are is unknown, but there's a, there's a resource called the World Spider Catalog, which is a wonderful resource on, that keeps track of all of the species that have ever been described. And uh, the World Spider Catalog, about three weeks ago, there was a, a big momentous event where we described the, the 50,000th spider species. So. Wow. Everyone wow. was hoping to be able to describe number 50,000, but, but that happened just a couple of weeks ago. Wow. But like I say, we don't really know because uh, probably most species of spiders are remain undescribed. There's estimates there, that there are over 100,000 or maybe 150,000 actual species on the planet, but wow. that would mean that most, the majority have not been described. That sounds like it's one of the taxa that has uh, got the most <laughs> undescribed species. Uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't really compare to some of the hyperdiverse lineages of insects, like uh, some parasitoid wasps or some species of beetles, and it certainly doesn't compare to like all of the like unicellular life forms that are poorly known. But for animals that are relatively large and in the yeah. grand scheme of things, pretty well known. You know, they're 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 considered to be dark taxa. Lots of undescribed species. Maybe a bit like nematodes. Nematodes, millipedes. Yeah, yeah. Nematodes is amazingly diverse. Can you do a give us a little background on their evolutionary history? The spiders have been around for a really long time, right? Yeah. So uh, obviously, spiders are arachnids, and Arachnid phylogeny and evolutionary history is actually, we've learned a lot in the past few years, and it's still very controversial. 
There's new evidence suggesting it, the the kind of prevailing paradigm has always been that arachnids, of course, are terrestrial and that the terrestrial lifestyle evolved once within arachnida and that uh, uh, sea spiders and horseshoe crabs are outside of that. And of course, those are marine. So there was this marine to terrestrial transition. And there was like a single common ancestor for arachnids that was terrestrial. What they're finding recently is that horseshoe crabs uh, appear to fall inside of arachnids. And that is, uh, that's based on, on genomic data. And it's, it's controversial because it conflicts with most of the, the fossil paleontological data, which suggests that marine to terrestrial transition. But if horseshoe crabs are inside arachnids, then we definitely need to rethink the story about how many times arachnids evolved to live on land, whether or not then they evolved to live back in the, in the oceans, etc. That's kind of an, an aside of spider evolution, but it's a, it's a really interesting and exciting uh, recent development in arachnid phylogeny. So do pycnogonids and sea spiders kind of fit into this picture anywhere? That's yeah, pycnogonids would be at the base. They're definitely yeah. outside of yeah, yeah. their early diverging chelicerates and outside of arachnids plus horseshoe crabs. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that, that evolution happened when? Well, all of, certainly all of the, the molecular clock phylogenetic analyses push the time frame of arachnid origins between 450 and, and between there and the Cambrian explosion at, at about 520 million years ago. So arachnids wow. and when they were diversifying is, is amazingly ancient. Yeah. 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 That goes all the way back. Yeah. The yeah. Cambrian it goes explosions. all the way back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the paradox of course, is that they're, they're starting to kind of place the timing of diversification for these arachnid lineages, which are mostly terrestrial in times when there's not really evidence for terrestrial ecosystems. So that's- Yeah, that's uh, what I was wondering. You problematic. Know. Yeah, 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 wow. <laughs> yeah, so that, you know, that time frame between four and 500 million years ago, there's, you know, that's thought to be marine, but that's kind of when these diversification events appear to be happening. Oh, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. Are there any marine intertidal uh, spiders that might have lived in, in that kind of environment as a transition? Yeah, no, that that's also compelling because so people will always say, well, there's no way that that horseshoe crabs evolved from land back into the in, into the seas, but that's not true. Be, well, it's not true just to to discount it out of out of hand because uh, within spiders there are many transitions from from land back into the oceans as as either aquatic or intertidal animals. And, and, and within arachnids, there's like, if you look at the mites, for example, there's lots of, uh, lots of marine mites and they clearly have a terrestrial uh, ancestry. So it's happened other times. So it's not impossible. It's not like yeah. it remains to be a real interesting uh, area to, to continue to investigate on. on yeah, there's actually researchers basis. at UC Berkeley who, who have just written a, a really nice paper about uh, aquatic spiders. Both, both both freshwater aquatic spiders and but also uh, all of the kind of marine associated spiders but yeah there are spiders that live 
they live in the intertidal and they they build their webs in like you know and little shells and limpet shells and things and that's that's where they live it's so cool (laughs) yeah that is cool yeah and and they're still air breathing so they basically just hold their breath at high tide and wait yeah, for well, the, the amazing thing about what they can do is that they can use silk and they, and they use their silk just to make a little air bubble. Uh-huh. Yeah. If they live in a limpet shell. They'll just, you know, they live in, they're inside the limpet shell and then they just coat the, 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 the outside with silk and then it's just watertight. Yeah. It kind of oh, rings, rings a bell from the, the days when I was a kid and doing uh, aquariums. And I, I, I thought I remember something about, Freshwater spiders being able to trap a air bubble in uh, some sort of web that's underneath right. the water and and, uh, that's right. and get their air that way. That's the famous European water bell uh, spider. Oh yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, it's freshwater. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I've never. I guess seen if you've got four or five hundred million years to play around yeah. in, you can really <laughs> come right. up with a lot of innovative <laughs> strategies. Yeah. So going back to spy, so spiders, you have you have. Uh, Europigids or vinegaroons, right? And then you have uh, little micro vinegaroons. Those are called schizomids. And then you have, so those two are sister taxa. And then you have uh, amblypigids. People call those tailless whip scorpions. But those three uh, lineages are clearly then sister to the spiders. And that that's a, a part of arachnid phylogeny that is not controversial <laughs> everything else is pretty controversial which is cool yeah but uh that part Europigids, micro vinegaroons amblypigids those form a clade or a phylogenetic grouping that it then is then sister to the spiders that's not controversial and they actually share lots of things um, They're within the arachnids, but aside yeah. from spiders, and that's is, right. Is there same same level of uh, controversy over the, you know what we actually recognize as terrestrial spiders? Is that is that pretty well settled? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's clear that you know spiders are spiders are spiders. There's no there's no controversy as to what is a spider. But then within within the spider tree, there's a lot of there's been a lot of shakeup. Yeah. But it's clear clear that spiders are spiders. Well, I would think there would be room for a lot of controversy with that many species. I mean, it's the taxonomic diversity is so immense that just working it all out, uh, you know, it just seems there isn't enough time in in the history of science to get all that worked out in in a conclusive way. One one interesting, sorry, one interesting fossil that they recently found was... uh, a fossil spider that seems to be the sister lineages, the sister to all living spiders. So it's a little South Southeast Asian fossil spider that actually has a tail, kind of like a tail, like a vinegaroon or a, a little schizomid. So that's really quite interesting. And the spinnerets are in a different place, but that, that's kind of an interesting. Like a scorpion, like a scorpion tail? Not like a scorpion tail, like a like a vinegaroon tail. You, okay. you know what I'm talking about? The, the the big animal, the big dark animals that you can find in Arizona, uh, Europigids. Huh. Yeah. Well, we'll have lost, to get some photos of lost, those up on our you website. Lost me. I've, I've spent most of my career studying stuff in the marine <laughs> mud. <so. laughs> vinegaroons. Yeah, vinegaroons are cool. They 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 secrete acetic acid or vinegar from the base of their tail. Oh wow. Yeah. Uh huh. 
Well, we'll have to get some information about those up on our website so people yeah. can follow along and see what we're talking about. Because yeah, uh, sure. this is new to me, too. I, I... Or, yeah, or a picture of that new fossil spider, which is also really interesting. Yeah. So as, as people do uh, DNA sequencing on spiders, do the picture that falls out within the terrestrial spiders pretty consistent with what systematists uh, did based on morphology? I would say yes and no. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's some clear... There's some clear divisions that the both the morphology and, and genomics or phylogenomics supports, but then everything else has been within the last 10 years, we've basically transformed our knowledge of, of the spider tree of life. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. yeah. If you're just joining us, listeners, uh, we're speaking on the Ecology Hour tonight uh, with Dr. Marshall Hedin. He is professor and associate chair at the Department of Biology, San Diego State University, and his specialty is spiders and particularly spider taxonomy, uh, which is an immense topic as we are <laughs> learning <laughs> right now. Just getting started. <laughs> yeah. Which, uh, could you tell us, uh, you know, obviously you can't possibly be an expert on 50,000 species of spiders. Uh, where where does your special uh, research interest lie? Well, so I actually work on spiders that are kind of sprinkled across the spider tree of life. And I also work on harvestmen or opilione. So if you want to ask me about those later, that, that's fine too. A different <laughs> group of arachnids. But uh, so if you look at spider phylogeny, there, there are are spiders from Southeast Asia that, that retain segmented abdomens. And those are called uh, mesotheles. And they're, they're really cool. They're kind of like living fossil spiders. But then, then all other spiders are found in two big groups. There's the mygalomorph spiders, which are tarantulas and trapdoor spiders and purseweb spiders and et cetera, their kin. So the, the mygalomorphs and then the mygalomorphs are sister to what are what are called the true spiders, which is kind of a misnomer because they're all spiders. Anyway, I spend a lot of time uh, working on uh, mygalomorphs, trapdoor spiders in particular, and, and their relatives, particularly in California. But then within the true spiders, I work on lots of different lineages of true spiders as well. I'm, I'm really interested in actively working on jumping spiders, I'm working on cave spiders, which are related to orb weaving spiders. I work on some some early diverging true spider lineages like Hypochylus. And I've actually done phylogenetic work looking at the entire tree of all spiders. So in a sense, I am interested in all spiders. <laughs> yeah. You are an expert in all 50,000 species. <laughs> I wouldn't say that I'm an expert in all spiders. I'm not, but... But I have, uh, I have, I, I am actively working on all, uh, well, at least a, phylo a phylogeny for all spiders. What, which can, is, what can we say generally about uh, the life history of spiders? Um, or is it, is it hard to generalize? Yes, it's hard to generalize. It, there's, there's a lot of variation. Yeah. So like uh, trapdoor spiders, there are, uh, there are, Australian trapdoor spiders that researchers have their they tagged their burrows and trapdoor spiders are, are interesting because they don't move so they build a burrow and then they stay there. So these Australian researchers tagged these uh, 
trapdoor spider burrows and they followed the same individual and found that that individual in the wild lived for over 40 years. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. So that's pretty spectacular. That's the oldest known uh, in the wild spider. But then, you know, a lot of spiders live for one year. That's what they do. They're annual. But there's a there's a good number of spiders that live for two years and a, a decent chunk of spiders that will live for five to ten years. And then the, the really long lived uh, mygalomorph spiders, which that's like that's not like a, that's not a spider life history at all. It's like something else that is so cool, you know. Hmm. So uh, tarantulas or mygalomorphs? Mygalomorphs, that's correct. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. And they live a long time? Tarantulas live a long time. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. 25, 30 people. I mean, people have kept tarantulas in captivity for 35 years. Wow. Yeah. The other thing about tarantulas is that the females, so in most spiders, the females, when, so female or spiders are obviously molting to grow. And then most spiders, they, when they, they molt to adulthood, then they stop molting right? They're, they're adults and then that's it. But one yeah. thing about mygalomorphs is that the females continue to molt after adulthood. So she just, she just continues to get older and older and will molt and she's still an adult. So the, are, are they growing between molts? They'll grow a adult? bit. I mean, there's, there's kind of a, a, they get to a certain size and that's all the bigger they get, but their growth is indeterminate. They'll just keep growing and molting. And they cool. just molt, and, they, and so they kind of wear out the exoskeleton and molt out a new one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course, I that guess. does not apply to the males. The males, it's always the case that the males molt to maturity. They have their fancy pedipalps, and then they look for the female, and then, and then they die. They don't continue to molt. Uh-huh. And so they don't live as long, then? They don't live as long. That's right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So a- all, the, all this... Um, I don't know what I don't call it popular popular ideas about spiders. I know that, that the female uh, black widow eats the male after they mate and all that. Is that pretty? Is, is first of all, is that true? And <laughs> second, secondly, if it is true, is, is that relate to a lot of spiders? Uh, I mean. Some of those classic studies have actually been shown to be flawed because the females were hungrier than usual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it's definitely not always true in the wild. Yeah. But there there are uh, well-studied systems where it is adaptive. So the male is essentially using himself as a, a nuptial gift. He's giving himself up to the female to increase her fecundity and thus increase his fitness. So, yeah. yeah Interesting. Interesting. And it's yeah. definitely not true, you know, across the board in spiders. Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, females, female spiders are predators, so it's it's going to happen, and it that, that's one of the most fascinating things about male spiders is that they have to deal with female spiders that are predators. So. Yeah, what little I have read about them, uh, there's some fairly intricate courtship rituals, right? Uh, oh yeah. The male. Uh, having to very carefully approach the female because she perceives him as prey. Yep. Make sure she's well fed, right? And sure he perceives well her as yeah something else. So, uh, 
there must be a wide diversity in those strategies. There is. Yep. Yeah, of course, you know, some, so, so, so some jumping spiders, jumping spiders can see very well. So uh, male jumping spiders and, and jumping spiders are not building webs uh, it, for, for the most part. So, you know, male jumping spiders have evolved to be fancy and they have fancy courtship dances and they actually, when they're courting the female, sometimes they will dance and they'll sing at the same time that is they're producing sound. Huh. So that's really interesting multimodal courtship that is mostly uh, visual and acoustic, but then lots of spiders, you know, they're, they're on web. So then the, the male is using various vibratory signals to coax the female uh, from her retreat on the web and kind of convince her that he's a male and not something else. But then it's, it's also really interesting because other animals have taken advantage of that. So there are some jumping spiders that mimic uh, other, the signals of other spiders and the female will come out of her web and then the jumping spider will eat that, that, that female. So <laughs> that's really interesting. And there's, a, there's actually some, some true bugs that do the same thing. They, they go to a spider web and then they start to tweak it. And they often do this in kind of a, an experimental way to see what works. And then the fem- the spider will come out of its web, and then the the true bug will eat the spider. So there's oh, there's yeah. interesting deception that that is also involved. Well, has anybody ever recorded the sound that a spider makes? Oh sure, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. I, I have a colleague at UC Berkeley who that's one of the principal things that he does is record the sounds of uh, jumping spiders. I mean, he 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 works on bioacoustics. What that was one of the things he works on. So, any of those yeah, sure. any, any of those things online for listeners oh, yeah. who want to listen to spider songs? Oh yeah, I have got to get some sound files of <laughs> yes. spider song to yes. to splice into this interview. Just Google uh, Google Habernatus Habernatus courtship. Okay. Habernatus courtship. How do you spell that? H a b r o n a t t u s. Habernatus courtship. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You'll so the see jumping spiders, those those are pretty familiar to people. We see those all the time, especially here. The, the Johnson jumpers are really yes noticeable, very striking spiders. Yes. Yeah. Cool Habernatus that you guys would have around there would be a like a Habernatus Habernatus mustaciata. So if you want to Google that and look at a picture of a, a really spectacular Habernatus Habernatus mustaciata. I've actually okay. collected them in, in Mendocino County on the in the lagoon lagoon vegetation. Oh really? Uh-huh. Really? Short short grasses next to the beach and sandy areas. Like down here at Navarro River Lagoon? Yeah, yes, exactly. Oh, ah, okay, good. Good. Yeah, we'll try to get some pictures of them up that's i've got a lot of spiders in my lawn i've never tried to capture them and figure out what (laughs) what what species they are but uh they look like they could might jump Uh, yeah so the we so we have those do we have any trapdoor spiders here in mendocino uh yes of course we do (laughs) (laughs) well we've got a lot of we got a lot of different environments here in Mendocino. Yeah, County. exactly. Yeah, there's several mygalomorphs. Yeah, I'm sorry. Several mygalomorphs that you can find in uh, Mendocino County. There's a 
the California turret spider, which builds uh -huh. a little silken turret, kind of looks like a little miniature gun turret. That little mm -hmm. miniature gun turret is made out of silk. Yeah, you, you've, you've probably seen, there's plenty along the Navarro River, uh, actually. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, there's a trapdoor spider species that lives on the sand dunes. Uh -huh. uh, uh, species called Aptosticus Miwok, actually. Huh? Which is a cool species. Yeah. Uh, and and it's it's interesting because it lives on the sand dunes, and it builds a trap door. It builds its it builds its burrow in 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 the sand, and then it somehow builds a trap door out of silk and sand. And then that's where it lives, of course. And then other arthropods are wandering past. And at night, it'll come out of its trapdoor and grab them. But I've always just been fascinated about how it kind of how its burrow maintains any structural integrity just in that that moving loose sand. Yeah, yeah. exactly. What do they yeah. do when the sand dune moves? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've, I've always wondered that. Yeah, That's an interesting a... species. It's only found on the sand dunes of, of in Northern California. It's kind of micro endemic there. Huh. I know in the marine environment, uh, you know, things like annelid worms build tubes out of, uh, uh, they live in sandy environments. They build tubes out of sand, but they usually secrete a mucus to hold the, the sand grains together to give some structural integrity. And in yeah. Yeah, the, I mean, the spider is using silk, but it, it's pretty, when you extract the spider from its burrow, that silk is very, very thin. It's not thick silk. So that's oh, interesting. compelling. Yeah. yeah. Must be some there's interesting a, mechanics going on there. There's some kind of just standard trapdoor spiders in, in Mendocino County, uh, a little Aliatopus species, uh, which just is found in, like maybe shaded banks uh, and such. And then a, a genus Promyrmichiophila would be found there. And they build nice trapdoors. They're also found on kind of banks, shaded banks, and they build nice trapdoors out of silk and then whatever is around them, uh, grasses and stuff. Yeah. Well, we're getting a sense definitely of the uh, of the immense diversity and ubiquity, I guess, of spiders and, and both classes of these, or both orders of these things. They're just everywhere, it sounds like. How do you do your field work? I mean, it seems daunting, you know. There's, <laughs> there's so many of these things, and they're everywhere. How do you narrow it down and focus on something, and what kind of field work do you do? Yeah, that's a good, I mean, that's a good question. I rarely go out in the field and collect uh, generally. So most of our field work is pretty targeted. But then, you know, we have often very different types of targets. So maybe we're interested in, you know, capturing some mygalomorphs on a particular field trip. And then that's pretty much what we look for. On a different trip, we might be interested in, uh, jumping spiders and then that's what we look for but looking for jumping spiders is totally different from looking for trapdoor spiders <laughs> so you kind of you know I, I obviously have a pretty good feel for the habitats and microhabitats where the spiders are found and those that's just what you look for when you're moving around in the field on a field trip 
and that's what you do. Yeah, I mean, my lab does a lot of field work. I think we, I kind of pride myself in, in my lab being very active in the field and all of my students being active in the field. So we continue to do that. And I think that's really important uh, to con- continue to do that in, in this modern world. But mm-hmm. uh, when we go out on an expedition, it's usually an expedition for, you know, tax on X. And then that's kind of what we look for in those, those days of the field. And then your field work is aimed at establishing the distribution or you're studying its habits. What exactly are you doing when you're out in the field? Yeah. So, so, uh, I mean, what we do fundamentally is try to figure out what the species are and figure out where the species are distributed. But then beyond that, we, we do a lot of work on, understanding the phylogenetic relationships of the species and then the phylogenetic relationships of the genera that the species are in, the families, etc. So we do a lot, a lot of phylogenetics uh, in combination with the, the really kind of basic and fundamental biodiversity research of just knowing what the species are and knowing where the species are found. But then we're also interested in patterns of genetic variation and diversity within the species and how that's distributed across the landscape and a biogeography or phylogeography and then all of the phylogenetics and then what the phylogenetic phylogenetics tells us about how the spiders have evolved how their webs have evolved how their venoms have evolved everything about their evolution mm-hmm. that you can learn through the phylogenetics yeah mm-hmm. wow yeah and so do do you do much population biology or is that things that other people do? You know, I do. We do fluctuations of populations and interrelationships yeah. between different species. And yeah. yeah. Uh, we do population biology in terms of population genetics, uh, understanding kind of how, how genetically variable populations are and how, whether or not there's gene flow across populations. So we do that type of population work. And we're also interested in, uh, we are interested in how kind of things that are happening now are impacting population numbers. I'm certainly not a population ecologist. That's not what I do. I'm a systematist, but uh, we are doing research to understand how how modern impacts are impacting numbers that of of, of animals that we see in the field. So you look at uh, you know, human influences, for instance. Yeah, one of the things that we're able to do is, you know, I've been studying spiders in California for a long time, and I've I have a lot of a lot of collections (laughs) so and so like for my gallimorphs an interesting thing like i said before about my gallimorphs is they don't move so we we know where my gallimorph colony would be or where we found it 20 years ago or where we found it 10 years ago so what we are interested in doing is returning to those places in the context of climate change or fire and asking whether or not those colonies still persist, for example. Yeah. Yeah. If you, 
If you've just joined us, um, uh, we're having a really interesting conversation with Dr. Marshall Hedin from Cal State University, San Diego, and we're talking about spiders. And uh, Dr. Hedin's an expert on evolution and genetics of spiders, and particularly in California. And so let's, I, I still want to hear more about the field work. And, and uh, also, uh, it occurs to me that there must be a lot of endemic species that have very limited ranges, since you have such a huge biodiversity. And it must be a little bit of a challenge finding those in the, in a time of rapid ecological changes. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, well, California overall has tremendous uh, endemicity and, and basically everything, but spiders included. And uh, yes, indeed, there are many, uh, many micro endemics. I mean, that's one of the, the primary reasons that we do what we do. First, we figure out what the species are and then we figure out what their geographic distributions are. And only then can you talk about microendemicity. You have to have those fundamental pieces of knowledge. What is the species and where are they found in the world? And that's the one that's one of the primary drivers of what we do, what we do to understand what where the microendemics are, because we're also very much interested in uh, conserving biodiversity and in, in, in doing conservation genomics research etc but yeah there's there's micro endemics everywhere in california uh, mm-hmm. and i actually we just described some but like in these mygalomorph spiders that i'm talking about mygalomorph spiders because they don't move uh micro endemics abound and you yeah. have to do the you have to do the field work to understand that you have to in essence, you have to go to all the places, <laughs> so it's it's daunting, but that's what you have to do. Yeah. Our work in California, it's been iterative because another thing about mygalomorphs that is interesting but also complex is that their morphology is very conserved. So there's a species that's described as a species, and it, and it's widespread. But when you start to do the the fine scale phylogenetic work on it, you find that it's not one species, but it's actually a complex of a bunch of different cryptic species. But to to figure that out, you have to go into the field, you come back, you collect the genetic work, you do the analyses, then you find that, wait, this, this genetic species is only found in this one area. So then you have to go back and continue to go back. So you just keep doing the, this iterative field work where you go back and and collect more, then you get more data from the lab, and then you go back into the field. Hmm. So yeah. that, that, that's how you think? discover the microendemics. So what these are. Oh, go ahead, Tim. So these species are—they uh, all look pretty much alike, and you can only distinguish them uh, in the lab with yeah. the genetics. Well, yeah. Yeah. That's or, or or the genetics is telling you where to look for minor mm-hmm. morphological differences. But, but a lot of these species, as currently known, are described as a single widespread species. And of course, that's really interesting because a single widespread species, you're not interested in it from a conservation perspective. It doesn't really hold any special value. But once you do the fine scale phylogenetic and geographic work, and you find that it's actually 20 species, and all of them have little tiny distributions, 
then the story completely changes. Right. That's why you have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind yeah, of anal- it's kind of analogous to salmon populations where where the the, the salmon in one creek will have uh, genetics that it looks similar to the next creek over, but the genetics are different. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And yep. so, what do you what do you think is is there uh, some morphology? Doesn't sound like it's all that important a, a, a driving force in the evolution of some of these spiders. Once you get down to the you know, what seems like species level, there's some as, other aspect of their life history or population biology that's driving this. Is there anything you can say about that? Well, I mean, it's a conundrum because uh, they're fa- the populations are found out in space and they're dispersed. But for some reason, their morphology, I think it reflects their ecology. Let's say if you live in a burrow underground and you're kind of doing the same thing, then their ecology is pretty much the same. Yeah, right? yeah. It's just that, that they're found in different places. But ecologically and morphologically, they're more or less the same across space. They're found in different places. And then you combine that with the fact that they, they do not move. So there's very highly restricted gene flow. And when you have very high, highly restricted gene flow, then the populations start to diverge genetically. And then you get speciation. Right. So, yeah, that's a recipe for biodiversity. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So is it a founder effect, uh, you think? Sometimes it's founder effect. Sometimes it's uh, it's what we call uh, rare dispersal common vicariance. And vicariance is just when a, a species range is split up. So at, at times in the past, the conditions have been such that the species can kind of uh, ex- expand its range and become more widespread. But but subsequent to that and and the more common dynamic is just fragmentation so there's been times where it's been able to spread rare dispersal but most of the time it just continues to fragment in this kind of fractile like pattern yeah different populations become genetically different Yeah. yeah there are rare instances of founder effect where the populations somehow are carried, they're dispersed, but that that's kind of rare. And that does happen in the mygalomorph spiders because, so they build those, you know, they build the silken burrow and they're often, they often like to live underneath like uh, root wads and things. Let's say a tree falls into a river and the spider's in there and it's silken burrow and it's happy and it, it can still respire. But then the, you know, the root wad washes up someplace downstream and then that's an example of kind of a a, a passive dispersal event and right. there is some evidence for that in in, in california mygalomorphs but mm-hmm. so i know we we talking on dispersal uh one of the things that i uh was aware of with spiders in my <laughs> skeleton knowledge <laughs> is that some of them build little like parachute like things and then they they get carried by the wind yep. to disperse uh i don't know if that's part of the megalomorph story or whether uh you know that's i don't know Maybe yeah no that's t- mostly t- true spiders mostly true spiders the balloon like that it's called balloony yeah. 
Yeah. There's a few mygalomorphs that balloon, but most most mygals do not balloon. They're sedentary. Mm-hmm. But yeah, many araniomorphs, uh, certain times of the year, often in the fall, uh, on warm, windy days, mm-hmm. there's silk everywhere. And those are all of the little spiderlings that are releasing silk into the air and then being carried off. Yeah. It's a terrific dispersal mechanism. And, and, uh, <laughs> And also kind of a nutrient transport, right? I mean, there's the, the numbers of those things. It's just staggering. In yes. The fall. Yeah. yeah, right. In, in, in ballooning events, the silk from ballooning spiders can just cover everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's a bonanza for the, the things that eat tiny spiders, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Does that usually, usually happen uh, uh, soon after they're born? Yeah, no, they have to be relatively small. So, yeah, right. I mean, like I said, in the fall, but it doesn't have to be in the fall. Yeah, yeah. Maybe a warm spring day or a warm fall day. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, they're not dispersing as larger spiderlings. They're dispersing as pretty small spiderlings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, teeny tiny little things, yeah. But that gets them all over the landscape for sure. So mm-hmm. that that must be a strategy that's employed more by the generalist. Species. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I'm kind of less interested in that because... Those species are are uh, le- legitimately widespread, and they don't have very much genetic variation within them. And yeah. I'm less right. interested in those, but it, it's still an interesting strategy. Yeah. So the megalomorphs that that are sedentary, how do they expand, and and how does their population move about? Uh, slowly. <laughs> <laughs> I would say so you get these small colonies and yeah, you can have a jillion species because. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, yeah. if, for example, if, if, if you guys go along the Navarro river and you find a colony of, of California turret spiders, you'll all, all often find a, a big female with a big gigantic turret. And if you, then you look closely around her turret, you'll find a bunch of little micro turrets and those are her, uh, you know, those are her babies. So they're just right there. The other thing about mygalomorphs is that they they kind of like specific microhabitats, so they can't live anywhere and everywhere. They they if the, if the female is there, that's a good place, and then that's where you'll find you know her offspring, etc. It just mm-hmm. continues in that way. So th- those spiderlings are obviously not moving very far. They're moving, you know, maybe a foot. <laughs> uh, wow. So like I say, slowly it's going to have to be slow. Like the long distance dispersal, uh, it just, if it's not like a, like a jump dispersal, like that floating thing that I was talking about, if they're actually expanding their range, they're expanding their range slowly. Very, very slowly. How many generations do they make in a year? Yeah. Multiple generations. And that's the other problem with climate change or habitat destruction, or if a colony is wiped out is because those spiders are not just going to get there again anytime soon, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. It's a very, very slow, natural process. And I mean, it's a problem more generally for my gallimorph spiders in the context of climate change because spiders either adapt or everything either adapts, it moves, or it goes extinct. Well, moving isn't really an option because they're not going to move far enough, fast enough. Right, and right. Uh, more, and their kind of evolution is also in a, in a, in the slow lane, right? They've been around for 350 million years. 
morphologically doing the same exact thing, they're not going to instantly adapt to, to new climatic conditions. Yeah. But the other thing about them is that they are somehow survivors, right? They have been on the landscape for those hundreds of millions of years. So you might think that somehow they're going to survive. Obviously, there's been lots of climatic upheaval over those hundreds of millions of years. Right. They've seen climate change. Yeah. yeah. The lineage <laughs> yeah. has. The, not, yeah. not individual species, but the lineage right. has. Exactly. Right. Yeah. They that, kind that's of, kind of yeah. what gives me hope is that those lineages have survived for that those time frames so it gives me hope yeah exactly yeah, uh, I, yeah i have analogous thoughts about corals <laughs> they've been around for hundreds of thousands hundreds of millions of years yeah. and uh so uh you know it looks really bad <laughs> in the great barrier reef right now with with bleaching but uh somehow uh, they've survived yeah. yeah yeah everything always recovers but i remember we had this conversation i think it was peter Pyle many years ago and i, I said the same kind of thing that you know evolution will, will will fix these problems and he he said yeah you're right but you geologists have a tendency to gloss over the fact that it will take 10 million years <laughs> yeah right but yeah biodiversity will recover after a mass extinction event it just we won't be around to see it right right so we talked a little bit about human influences i was wondering <clears throat> all the fires in california uh what we know about how how spiders deal with those uh, yeah these are populations and yeah it... it seems like they must be especially these sedentary spiders must be extremely vulnerable yeah well i mean i would say that we don't really know yet but that's something that my lab is interested in and I'm collaborating with people at UC Davis and we're, you know, we're interested in that as well. And like I say, we have the, the luxury of having these, these collections that ex extend back in time and we have a reasonable idea of what the numbers were then. So we can revisit uh, locations that have been impacted by fire to ask and understand how, how fire is actually impacting these things. But mm -hmm. But, I mean, it's certainly the case that uh, spider populations are being impacted. And I work yeah. on lots of other California spiders that are generally uh, habitat specialists requiring certain things, and uh, they're being impacted. Yeah. But, they, you know, the, again, you're looking at an extremely fine scale, right? Some of these things have a, a territory that's extremely minute and the pattern of fire is such that what looks to us uh, on a landscape scale like a total loss uh, and then you get down on your hands and knees and crawl around and there's little teeny pockets and patches of unburned areas and yes yeah you know, little refugia yeah now that's a good point i mean because I'm from California and I care so much about California biodiversity and, you know, it's just my place. It's where I grew up like every summer in the, in the past few years and the kind of the heat of the summer and the heat of the fire season, I'm just kind of mentally like crushed by all of the fires. But then, then when I, when I get out there again and move around the landscape, I, I see exactly what you're talking about. There's little patches and pockets, and, and, you know, that's where these little things are going to be. It's not the case for larger animals. 
that need you know more space but uh but the pack the 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 pockets are there for these things to persist mm-hmm. yeah exactly one thing that occurred to me when I just now that I was thinking about your interest in evolution and diversity, um, are you able to go in and extract uh, DNA from the older collections that you have and maybe compare that to what's going on now and maybe come to some conclusions about whether certain populations are moving genetically in certain yeah certain ways? Yeah. I mean, we haven't. That's not really something that we do in my lab, but but yes, within the last few years, people in arachnids have figured out ways to get DNA from specimens that are 100 years old or 200 years old. Obviously, they've been doing this in a lot of other taxa for uh, much longer, doing those those kind of historical versus modern genetic diversity comparisons. We're starting to do those in spiders mm-hmm. and other arachnids. Yeah. yeah. There yeah. should be some interesting stories coming out of that research, mm-hmm. I would think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I have a former student who's now at Harvard University who was able to extract and sequence DNA from museum specimens that were collected in like the 1850s, which is really, really cool, really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, we only have a few minutes left, I think, in uh, in our interview, uh, Dr. Hadeen. This has been fascinating, and uh, it's clear that the subject is so vast; it's hard for us to, <laughs> to yeah. pick a thread and stay with it. Uh, I just am wondering if there's uh, two things. One, I always ask where you would direct people to learn more uh, about the the spiders in general, but in particular the the work that you're doing and and the kinds of spiders that you work on. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, what, well, let's start with that. Just where would, where would you suggest people go to learn more about my spiders? Uh, there was a really nice book that was just published called spiders of the world. That's Platnik et al. And then there's a really nice book called the spiders of North America. I think it's called, I don't have it here on my, it's at home, but it's by okay. Rich Bradley, Rich Bradley book. That's a really nice book. There's a more technical kind of guide to all of the families called the spider genera of North America. That's a really nice place to learn. If you want to learn about the research that I'm doing, you can just go to my webpage and then I have all of my recent publications there listed and stuff, or you can just go to like Google scholar and type in my name and find most of my publications or, just see me, send me an email. I reckon if you wanted to do that, but that that's fine too. <laughs> yeah, and we'll have links. Uh, we'll have links for the books and for uh, uh, Dr. Hadeen's lab yeah. on our website. That's uh, ecologyhour.wordpress.com, and uh, I'll try to get a bunch of resources up there for people to follow. So the next question then is, you know, what? Uh, where are you going with this? What's your research? directed toward in the future and what lines of inquiry are you excited about pursuing yeah well so we're trying to we're trying to understand how genetic diversity is distributed across spider taxa in california Mm -hmm. for lots of different spider taxa 
And then we're, we want to use that information to understand where in the landscape there are hot spots of genetic diversity or microendemicity, where there's cold spots, et cetera. Whether or not those hot spots kind of coincide with other known hot spots for other, other taxa, maybe like plants or mammals or herps. And then very importantly, whether or not those hot spots of diversification and diversity are, are conserved. So ultimately, I mean, I'm not going to have enough time in my career to do that for all California spiders, but uh, we can continue to do that for California. And then I kind of think that that framework is nice for other parts of the world, but really understanding biodiversity at a very fine scale, geographically and genetically, and then what that tells us about landscape evolution, but also, you know, whether or not those places and that diversity is is conserved well enough kind of moving forward. So those are things that I think about and care about. Sound like you had enough to keep you busy for a few years. <laughs> yes. I kind of wish that I could do, like I'm just starting to figure it out, you know, and I, I wish I could, I, I could like do it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think almost all of us feel that way at some point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, about our careers and in some cases about our lives. <laughs> yeah. But there's like so many more students that I want to impact and help help guide and and, and, and just help. Yeah. I mean the fact of the matter is is that we need way more boots on the ground biodiversity biologists. We just need that. Yeah. Particularly yeah. in the context of what is happening. Um, yeah, this has been a fascinating conversation and I, you know, I was going to ask you about eyes and spiders and venom, but we haven't <laughs> talked about those <laughs> and more about, you know, reproduction and so forth, but, uh, maybe that'll, uh, that'll have to wait for another day. Next time. Part two. Yeah. yeah maybe part two. So. Yeah. 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 Thanks, Dr. Hedin. Uh, really fascinating discussion. Uh, it is too bad because I wanted to hear a little bit about those things as well. You know, the development of venom evolutionarily because uh, that's actually a really fascinating story in a lot of different taxa right it's a yep. uh, it's a, a strategy that an awful lot of animals and plants have developed it seems to just come up over and over again evolutionarily so uh, and then yeah why do they have so many eyes <laughs> <laughs> yep all right. Well, we will get to those questions the next time we talk to Dr. Hedin on the Ecology Hour. <laughs> that about wraps our show up for the night. Thanks, everybody, for sticking with us. And again, we will have some information that you can follow up on on our website. That's ecologyhour.wordpress.com. Thanks again. Thank you guys so much. Yeah. Okay. Super. Keep learning. Take care. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.